making their way to their various locations, I want to invite you to uh, do the same and make your way to the book of Proverbs, chapter 10 this morning. Proverbs chapter 10. Uh, We are in the middle of a sermon series from from the book of Proverbs on building healthy homes. And we've currently, the uh, the last two Sundays, we've talked about parenting. And uh, what we've been looking at applies directly to parents, obviously, but also to anyone who has a heart for the next generation, much of which is said and much of what we'll consider in God's word uh, applies as well. With parenting, we've noted, comes a whole array of feelings and emotions. We've focused primarily on just a feeling of inadequacy. Uh, But with that, I think sometimes in parenting can come other feelings, really big ones, like guilt and pain, or maybe in contrast to that, fulfillment and delight. And maybe you would say as a parent, oh man, I I feel like I have failed, or I feel like I have succeeded, or I'm, I'm really discouraged, or I'm just so proud in the good sense of that word in my children. Children really do impact how their parents feel And God has given you his word, like the teachings of Proverbs, to help you navigate all of those feelings, all of those emotions, whichever ones may be coming your way. As a parent, you need to anchor yourself to the Lord through the whole journey. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Uh, So far, we've looked at four T's for parents. We started by saying, hey, let's talk about your task. What is that? You are a teacher, trainer, instructor of your kids, and that work is meant to be done uh, not just above the soil with the fruit, but also below below it with the root, your child's heart. Uh, We also talked about your team, that in God's uh, ideal world, parenting is meant to be done by a loving mother and father who love each other and are happily married and working in unison, working together as a team. We've also looked at your timetable, that there is going to be a release and transition date. Your children are going to grow up, and they need to walk this road on their own. And last week, we considered as well your tools, three in particular from the book of Proverbs, your your words, your lips, your life, and also a loving correction. And today, we want to look at a few more T's, and we begin here this morning by saying, let's talk about your tears and triumphs. Look at Proverbs, or turn to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1, if you're not already there. Uh, I believe that most parents would say that parenting involves both tears and triumphs. And as your children grow and develop, who they are and, and who they become and what they do and what they say, all of those things are going to start to really affect you in enormous ways. And it doesn't matter, uh, really, maybe your children are still in, in the home, maybe they're adults and they've got children of their own. Your children will drastically influence your emotions, your affections, and your inner being. And Solomon in the book of Proverbs is going to go right there. He's going to say, hey, let's look at your heart and your affections and your emotions. The state of their heart, of your child's heart, will impact the state of yours. And your children can pierce your heart. Uh, They can... Uh, cause your heart to rejoice and celebrate uh, maybe both uh, or a whole spectrum of things in between. I mean, one child could bring you all over the map in your heart. Proverbs almost, I, I want to give you a, a picture here that I think is almost accurate, but, but not exactly. It's not perfect, and I'll explain more as we go. But Proverbs almost, but not exactly, presents this dynamic to be something like what you see with one of those little puppet dolls uh, on, on the strings with the sticks. And the doll below uh, is, you know, you see its legs going and its arms going. But all of that's happening because there are these strings that go from the doll up to the, this little, these, these sticks, this, this little instrument that you can control the whole doll with. 
And you see the doll moving, but the reason it's moving the way that it's moving is because there's a hand above it controlling it. The sticks through the sticks and the strings. The hand above controls the doll down below. And so the hand of the child, young or old, in a sense, controls the doll, the heart of mom and dad. And Solomon is going to tell us in several verses just how great is the power of a child. What does Solomon have to say? Well, some children bring their parents to triumph. Proverbs teaches that if your children grow to be wise and righteous and they have been lovingly, faithfully disciplined by you, they will tend to bring you to this sense of triumph and exaltation and fulfillment. And you'll find yourself rejoicing in your child. Specifically on that note, Proverbs teaches that a wise and righteous child tends to bring his parents joy and gladness. And I just want to take you on a journey through Proverbs and look at several verses that highlight this. Um, Let's start there where I've asked you to turn in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1. If you look there, we read the Proverbs of Solomon and then this statement. A wise son makes for what? A glad father. That's the impact that a wise son has, not just on dad, but also his mom. Uh, And and Solomon's going to say this more than once in more than one way. Flip over to chapter 15 and join me there in verse 20. Proverbs 15, verse 20. Same statement again, the first half of the verse. A wise son makes a glad father. And again, Solomon, he's talking about the internal effect, the heart impact on you, mom and dad, based on your children. And nothing will make you quite as glad as watching your child walk in wisdom and the fear of the Lord. You just think about that as a parent. If if there was anything that would make you happy, if there's anything that would bring you joy, if there's anything that you're hoping for your child, what is it? That they would walk in wisdom and the fear of the Lord, we'd go, what a joy. That is, that is like the climax in parenting, that your children are walking that way. What a sense of triumph. What could be better than that as a parent? Uh, turn over to chapter 23, verses 15 and 16. Notice the language of the heart here. Proverbs 23, verses 15 and 16. Solomon says to his son, My son, if your heart is wise, then my heart too will be glad. And he's going to stay there focused on what's going on inwardly. In verse 16, he says, My inmost being will exalt when your lips speak what is right. The wise heart of a child makes the glad heart of mom and dad. There's a direct correlation. Those, those strings that I talked about with a doll there, they really are there in a sense. And further, when as a parent, as these verses talk about as a parent, when you hear your child speak what is right from his own lips, that causes you to celebrate with joy in your heart. After all, we might say that the lips are the dipstick to the heart. We know from Scripture that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you hear what is right bubble forth from your child's heart and out on their lips, that makes you glad because you're sitting there thinking, they get it. Like, this is them. Look at uh, chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, and this just continues. Except now the focus shifts to a son who is not just wise, but also righteous. 
which very much those, those ideas go together. Proverbs 23, 24, and 5, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. And then flip over to chapter 27, verse 11. This will be the last verse that we look at on this particular theme. Proverbs 27, verse 11, Solomon says, Be wise, my son, and make my heart glad. Again, he's talking about his internal emotions and his affections and his thoughts and all his inner being. Make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. The caliber of a teacher's students tends to say or convey something to others about the credibility of the teacher. And in a similar way, the caliber of a child tends to give others a certain impression about the parents. Now, I mean, let's be honest, people's impressions may be dead wrong, but people do form those impressions. I mean, sometimes you wish you could just stop them from doing that, but they do it. And when others see, here's the dynamic, when others see that you have a son that's wise and righteous, they esteem you highly. And as a parent, what an honor and joy that is, and an honor and joy to have a wise and righteous child. They will bring you honor and joy, Solomon says. This is great stuff. This is wonderful. A wise and righteous child tends to bring his parents joy and gladness. Proverbs also teaches that a disciplined child tends to bring his parents rest and delight. Flip over to chapter 29, verse 17. As we saw last week, Solomon has praised the rod and reproof, and he has commended those things to parents, reminding us that these are part of our responsibility to our children. And here he speaks of the fruit of those labors in Proverbs 29, verse 17. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. And there could be a lot in that word. The idea of peace, comfort, tranquility, maybe literal rest, literal sleep at night. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. And then he continues, he will give delight to your heart. Again, we're talking about your inner person. What a beautiful pair discipline produces. Uh, Rest and delight, Solomon says. Rest, your heart can rest free of distress, emotional anxiety, and turmoil. He's giving this idea that, that your child is not keeping you up at night because he's living in a way that leaves you uh, undisturbed in your soul and quiet in heart. It's a beautiful picture. And the second word is delight. Uh, this word is used elsewhere to describe food. Makes sense. It's like the delight you experience when you bite into something or you drink something that's really, really good, right? When it, you know, smacks your taste buds. I've always really enjoyed cheesecake. I don't know if any of you others really like cheesecake. I love cheesecake in pretty much any shape or form, flavor that it comes in. You think about whatever it is that you like, maybe for dessert in particular, and get that in your mind right now. When you take that first bite of a big, thick cheesecake and your palate is hit with great delight, it may make your eyes sparkle. You may go, ooh, that is just really good. I like that. That type of sensory experience is how Solomon conveys the impact of of a child who has received correction and discipline and and the, the effect he has on his parents. It's like that sensory type of experience. 
It's a sense of delight in the sun. However, not all children bring their parents to this sense of triumph or fulfillment. Solomon's going to speak of that side of things, but he's going to speak of the flip side. Some children bring their parents to tears. You can turn back with me to chapter 10, verse 1. Sometimes the root of the tree, so to speak, is twisted, and it's gnarly, and it's perhaps even dead, and the fruit is hard and sour and bitter. And when this, when this is the case, mom and dad find their hearts breaking in many forms of, of pain and agony. Proverbs teaches that a foolish child tends to bring his parents many, many, many pains. Remember the hand of the child, young or old, controls the doll, the heart of mom and dad down below. What forms of pain does a foolish child end up bringing to his parents? Well, they are many, like sorrow and the absence of joy. Look with me back at chapter 10, verse 1. We've already looked at the first half of this verse. The Proverbs of Solomon, a a wise son makes a glad father. We saw that. We saw how great that was, but there's a contrast. But a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. A sorrow. Your child can bring you great heaviness of heart and and heartache. Deep, deep sorrow in your soul, Solomon is saying. If you flip over to chapter 17 and look at verse 21 with me. Solomon's going to say the same thing again, but a little bit differently. Proverbs 17, verse 21. Here Solomon says this, He who sires a fool. What a proud moment, the moment of siring a son. He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow. And the father of a fool has no joy. I find it interesting that this verse notes not, not only what we already saw, the, the presence of sorrow, but now it's going gonna, it's gonna to look at it from another angle. It also mentions the absence of something, the absence of joy. Not only is there the presence of sorrow, there's this absence of joy. The father of a fool has no joy. Foolish children, in a sense, we might describe them as being like a vacuum hose that's been set to all the corners and crevices and cracks of mom and dad's heart, just (laughs) sucking something out of their parents' hearts. And Solomon says it's this, they suck out all the joy. A foolish child tends to bring his parents to sorrow and the absence of joy. But it gets worse. A foolish child also brings grief and bitterness. Look over at chapter 17, verse 25. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. As Solomon's saying there, that your child could bring you grief and vexation as well as bitterness. Uh, I think bitterness may best be pictured here as an open wound that doesn't, Heal. That's often how we describe it when we're speaking of bitterness in other terms. And I think it's appropriate here as well. You've got this this wound. You've got this deep cut, this laceration. And it doesn't heal. In a sense, how, how could it? And it may even become infected. The child cuts deep into the heart of his mom. And deep into the heart of his dad, leaving them with this gaping wound. And the wound is not cleansed, it's not bound up so that it can heal. It's brutal, Solomon says. 
Also, a foolish child tends to bring diminishment and rejection. Flip back to chapter 15, verse 20. A wise son makes a glad father. Again, what a delight. And then there's a contrast. But a foolish man despises his own mom, his mother. The feeling of being despised is not a positive feeling. And here we have a deep piercing pain to a mother's and perhaps a father's heart. It's the wound of being diminished in the eyes of your child and rejected by him. He doesn't want your voice. He doesn't want your counsel. He doesn't want your ways. He doesn't want your life. And mom and dad think something like this. When we brought you home from the the hospital at seven pounds, we never thought it would be like this with our precious little girl, with our precious little boy. And further, a foolish child can bring ruin. Flip over to chapter 19, verse 13. 19.13 A foolish son is ruin to his father and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. Uh, Just take this verse together, the whole thing. And it gives us a house that is thoroughly broken everywhere you look. Mom, as we saw several weeks ago, she's like a storm. Dad comes inside and decides he'd rather be outside in the rain that he just came in from. Mom is a storm. The sun is described as a deep, chasmous pit that his father falls straight into. And dad feels cold, wet, broken, and ruined. And what Solomon's bringing up in this verse is that your children can bring you to to ruin, perhaps in many different ways, and we could certainly explore those things. Uh, Perhaps, though, there's also another lesson for us here. Namely, that these things that we see in this verse are often related. Remember point number two, where we talked about your team and God's plan for the home, that you've got a mother and a father who both love Jesus, and they both love each other, and they're growing, and they're working in unison as a team. There's often a correlation between quarrelsome teams and foolish children. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as they say. And yet at other times, much to our surprise and and very much to the glory of God, God forges the godliest of children in the furnace of a broken home and a broken family where almost nothing is right. Big picture, a foolish child tends to bring his parents many pains. And an undisciplined child tends to bring his parents shame. Turn over to chapter 29 and look at verse 15 with me here in a moment. Uh, We saw that children who are corrected and disciplined, what do they do? They tend to bring their parents rest and delight. Notice the contrast that we find in this passage in chapter 29, verse 15. This verse says that the rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself, a child who, who doesn't get the rod and reproof, brings shame to his mom. 
The absence of discipline leads to the presence of shame. Your child, Solomon says, can bring you disgrace. Parenting involves both tears and triumphs. And what a contrast those two things are. And sometimes it's this mix of both. All wrapped up in the same child and his life and his experiences. And sometimes in the same family you have multiple kids. And you're you're getting all these things. This is an endeavor that one way or another will touch your heart. And so I, I think one of the big picture takes, takeaways for us is actually that we want to parent with the big picture in view. We, we get focused on the here and the now often, and the, the, all the little moments of parenting, and we forget that there's a really, really big picture here. And we want to parent towards the joys, away from the triumphs, to whatever degree that we can do that. Given the very sensitive and emotional nature of parenting that we've just seen, I think it's critical that we actually consider one more T for parents. And frankly, I think if this T gets left off of this whole conversation, you will not be able to parent through the maze appropriately. You will not be able to sort through it all, and you will have a very, very man-centered perspective on parenting. So one final T for parents. Let's talk for a moment about your trust. Turn back to chapter 22, verse 6. Proverbs almost feels formulaic, doesn't it? It just has that sense almost uh, everywhere you turn in this book. It's like you're looking at a formula as we've talked about parenting, almost. It reads and feels kind of like an equation that goes something like this. 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals, well, that would be 5. And it's almost like this. If you do a good job with your task and you work really, really well with your team and you steward your timetable and you have effectively wield your tools and if you parent hopefully towards all those wonderful triumphs instead of the tears, then do you know what will happen? That's five. Like you will have a five-star kid who really, really, really loves Jesus. Does the Bible give us such a formula? Maybe I could ask it this way. Does the Bible give you such a promise? And the answer is no. It does not. It gives us something else. It gives us a proverb. Proverbs 22 verse 6 says this, Train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That sounds like a promise. But it's not. It's a proverb. It's in a book that's literally called Proverbs. (laughs) These are not promises. Proverbs are timeless principles that generally prove true. There's a difference between a promise and a proverb. The verse that I just read, when understood as proverbial, leaves us with a sense of tension. At least when I read it, I feel a little bit of this sense of tension. Because on the one hand, the verse fosters an immense amount of hope and confidence. I mean, just an immense, immense amount of that. And yet it simultaneously leaves us with this little unknown, nagging fear. What if my child 
or my children prove to be the exception to the rule? What if my kid is the exception to the proverb? Is, does this mean that I could do everything right? I mean, I know, I know I'm not going to do everything right, but I mean, I could more or less parent within the right vein and going down the right river and somehow still my kid not love Jesus? That's a tough thought to grapple with, which is why we need to talk about your trust in God and his plans. You need to trust God's parenting plan, first of all. Proverbs 22, verse 6 gives us great, great cause for hope and optimism. Basically, I think Proverbs 22, verse 6, would tell us that the odds are so, so high, incredibly high. When we follow God's parenting plan, like we've seen in the book of Proverbs and uh, like we, what we can find elsewhere in Scripture, you need to trust God's parenting plan. God said, this, what I'm telling you here, you need to know that this is really, really good. I wrote it. It's right and it's good. Trust me. Do it. Live it. And you're not going to do it perfectly. You're going to fail along the way. You're going to grow all the way throughout the process. You're going to have to confess your sin. You're going to make all kinds of mistakes. But the words that I give you are life. Follow my plan. But we need to go a step further. Not only do you need to trust God's parenting plan, you need to trust God's saving plan. And this is where it gets really, really big. I want you to turn with me over to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's turn our attention to the New Testament for a moment or two. And the text that we're about to turn to, 1 Peter chapter 1, I would like to remind you from this text that salvation from start to finish is a sovereign, miraculous work of God the Father accomplished through Jesus Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit. I mean, that is what Ephesians chapter 1 teaches for sure. And we see it all throughout Scripture. But to boil that down to what I'm trying to get at here this morning, you can't save and transform your child. And I think that all of us have to get that in our, in our heads and understand it. You cannot save and you cannot transform your child. Only God can do that. And we make a great mistake when we confuse means with cause. God is the one who causes people to be saved. From the very beginning all the way to the end. God is the one who starts and finishes this work and the whole process in between. God is the one who causes people to be saved and he uses human means or instruments like parents in that process. But salvation is his doing. And I just want to show you this from one verse, or one text, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. Uh, follow along as I read this text. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're praising God. We're blessing him here. Why? According to his great mercy, or in accordance with his great mercy, he's done something. He has caused us. To be born again. He's generated life. 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what has he saved us to? He saved us to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He has saved us for an eternal inheritance, and he's keeping that inheritance for us, and he's keeping us for that inheritance, Peter teaches. I want to draw your attention to a phrase there in verse 3, though. In that verse, we read that he, God, has caused us to be born again. God's the one who does that, not you, not me. We've talked about the need to parent both root and fruit, and I think that the, the, the imagery behind all of that is so, so helpful. Perhaps it's good to remember that as parents, we are gardeners. We are not God. We don't create spiritual life any more than we create a bean plant and its life. We don't do that. We don't produce spiritual growth any more than we produce a plant's growth. We don't do that. We're gardeners. For the last five years, our garden has more or less, not exactly, but more or less, it's been gardened the exact same way every year, which is not, we don't garden real well. We just kind of throw seeds in the ground and see what happens. But for the last five years, we have literally gardened the same way year after year after year after year. And every single year, the produce and the harvest has looked different. Different results. And it's a reminder as we set our hands to our literal gardens that there is a sovereign God out there on whom life and growth depend. And as we parent, I think we do well to remember the same. There is a sovereign God out there on whom life and growth depend. He is the one that said, I began a good work into you, in you. I'm the one that began it, and I'm the one that's going to bring it to completion. God wants you to trust him. And I would like to try to apply that by making several greater than statements related to the gospel. God and the gospel are greater than so many things. And if you grasp that in your Christian life in general and in, in, in your role as a parent, I think that it will help you trust God more and more and more, no matter what's going on. So here we go. God and the gospel are greater than your parenting power. And, and I think that means a lot of different things applicationally. I would encourage you, don't force a false conversion out of your child. Some of you, you just, you felt that need. Maybe you even did it, right? Maybe your mom did it with you or your dad. Mom and dad are just so ready to pluck the fruit of salvation, right? There's nothing more than we would love to see than our children come to Christ and for them to be born and life generated. That is the work of God. And, and you're there in that process to, to talk to your kid, to point them to the gospel and all of your parenting, but don't force something that only God can do. And just, you need God's wisdom. There, don't force a false conversion from your child. Also, don't lose hope over your child's hardness. Uh, some of you have been, you've been praying for your kid for years and years and years. You're watching them make decisions right now, maybe as a, a, a teenager, maybe as an adult, maybe as someone with kids of their own. And it's, you just think, man, they sure do seem hard. Yeah, so did all of us when Jesus saved us. 
And I think the better that you understand the gospel and the way that God describes it, I mean, you think about something, uh, the way, there's been months now since we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God talks about how when he calls someone, when he summons somebody to salvation, it is like, boom. I mean, th- this is a train that's moving that cannot be stopped. And when God summons someone to life, life happens. And I think we want to remember that that is the God that we serve. He is a God who can save anyone, even the hardest, hardest of souls. I think very practically in all of our lives, this is a reminder to us that because we are people who are dependent on God, we should be people who pray. You cannot save your kid. You cannot help them grow. But you can bow down in humility before the Lord and say, God, I want to be a good gardener here. I want to do what you want me to do. But God, would you please do what no one but you can do? We should pray for our children and anybody we love who we want to see come to saving faith in Christ. God and the gospel are greater than your parenting power. Also, God and the gospel are greater than your parenting successes. Might sound odd, but think about that for a moment. Don't take more credit than actually belongs to you, the gardener. God's going to use you. You're an instrument in God's hands. You're the means that God wants to use in the life of your child. But he is the one that does the greatest of works. Which means that you want to be careful. Don't elevate yourself above other parents and don't evaluate yourself by other parents but evaluate yourself by the word of God it's really easy to go well my, my kid my, my kid turned out well I must have been a great parent maybe you really were a really good biblical parent that's awesome and God used that great but we evaluate ourselves by the word of God not other people and if we understand that God is the one who really does the saving, sanctifying work in a person's life, that's humbling to all of us. As we look at ourselves and other people, don't take more credit than actually belongs to you, the gardener. Don't evaluate yourself by other parents, but by the word of God. Another greater than statement, God and the gospel are greater than your parenting guilts and failures, whether those be real or felt. When parents see that their children aren't following Jesus, I think it's natural for them to ask a question that may be something to this effect. What went wrong? And my guess is that most Christian parents, whether they would verbalize this or not, most Christian parents probably end up blaming themselves. And so let's talk about that for a moment. You know, the the fact of the matter is, you may be a guilty gardener, and need to confess that to God. I mean, I would just think, which of us parents could sit here and be like, no, I'm not a guilty gardener. <laughs> not I. <laughs> uh, no. Like, we, we all, in any of our relationships, we look back and we see shortcomings and failures and things we should have done better at. That's all of us. And you may be a guilty gardener, and you may need to confess that to God, and you may have some big things you need to confess. Can I encourage you to do that and then move forward? The cross is a place where guilt falls away. You can take whatever it is that you are guilty of to the cross of Jesus Christ and you can leave it there. 
where it belongs, at the feet of Jesus. Remember Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none. And one of the deadliest devices of the devil is guilt. And he, just, he wants to wrap you up in so much guilt that you never do anything for God. You're just, oh, I must have failed as a parent. I'm, I'm a terrible Christian. I can never influence. I can never help anyone else. I can't serve Jesus. I'm like damaged. That is not the gospel. Guilt needs to give way to a lot of other things like prayer and helping other parents and so on. God has great plans. He wants to use you and you have to take all of that guilt and maybe it's real, maybe it's felt, whatever it is, you've got to take it there to Jesus and give it to him. Because the gospel is a message that keeps us marching forward and living forward. Also, don't bear the guilt of your child's rejection of Jesus. That is not yours to bear. The Bible warns against transferring culpability forward or backwards in a person's lineage. And I think it would apply to this whole discussion. Let me read to you from the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 24, verse 14. This is uh, given in, in a context of law. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You know, if that is the case, if that's how God looks at things, and if that's how God evaluates things, if this is the case, and I would caution you, don't look down your nose on ju- in judgment on others, lest you prove that you do not really understand the gospel. Don't put a person's parents to death in your mind or heart because that person, uh, because their child sinned against God and has rejected him. As we saw from Scripture, parents of foolish, ungodly children have suffered. They have suffered greatly. And when people are already hurting, the church isn't there to add more pain. Rather, what what does the New Testament tell us about the church? What do we do? We weep with those who weep. We do that on the one hand, and on the other hand, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We do all of that together, the weeping and the rejoicing. We pray together and we cry together. Your family is mine and my family is yours. That's the nature of how all of this works. The church is not a place for perfect people or perfect parents. By the way, I also think we do well to remember that God himself has obstinate, wayward, rebellious children. And if you doubt that, just look at Israel. As the centuries rolled on, read the prophets. (laughs) And I think, you think if you've got a child who has, has Christ dwelling within them, And you're the gardener, and it's like all the conditions are perfect. And the water's coming, and the sun is coming, and the plant's just growing, and you're like, wow, that, I mean, that's, that's like the, that's kind of like the easy gardening. But when things are different, you know, I think at the end of the day, it takes extraordinary godliness to parent a wayward child well. 
extraordinary godliness and wisdom. Okay, this, what do I do? And some of the godliest people I know have wayward children. And I think we need to remember that we are not people who just simply evaluate by what our eyes see. One more greater than statement. God and the gospel are greater than your parenting joy or pain. I use an illustration of a puppet on strings. And I think it was a good illustration because Solomon's drawing, though he is highlighting those strings are there. But truthfully, that illustration is too fatalistic for someone who knows the joy of the gospel. God and the gospel's joy is greater than not just the pains of parenting, but also the joys of parenting. The joy of the gospel is a superlative joy. You you can't top it. The joys of parenting can't top it. The pains of parenting can't erase it and eradicate it. Our children should hold a high place in our lives. But I think one of the dangers that all of us face is that at any moment they could actually hold a higher place than God. We hold them way up here, but God should be way up there. There is no throne higher than God's throne. There should be nothing higher than God in our lives. When we place our children in a higher place than God himself, we call that idolatry. The joy of the Lord himself is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength, and we, even when all the other joys wilt away. He is our joy. God and the gospel are greater than your parenting joy or pain. As a parent, you need to anchor yourself to the Lord. Through all the highs, through all the lows, we are people tethered to Jesus, and we are in him, united to him, and he is everything. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me at this time?